Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 157 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And we are back on track. Uh, We're going to finally get around to this this article we've been meaning to talk about because it's really fucking good um, on DeFi or decentralized finance, as 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 good as good Team K listeners will know. Uh, there's a, a, a fantastic article that came out a couple months ago by a law professor, uh, Hillary J. Allen, who's at American University Washington College of Law, um, and this piece is forthcoming in the William and Mary Law Review. But it's called DeFi Shadow Banking 2.0, and it's. I mean, it's just great. It, this is this is by far the clearest uh, analysis of decentralized finance that I've read. It's very lucid, very analytical, very precise. But in particular, it's not just an explainer on DeFi. What she's really doing in this piece is drawing a really rigorous and systematic comparative analysis between the the type of shadow banking or unregulated bank act and financial activities that we see in DeFi and drawing a direct comparison between the kind of shadow banking, as she calls it, shadow banking 1.0 that uh, led up from the early 2000s um, all the way up until it precipitated the, the global financial crash in 2008. And so she's drawing this analysis, essentially saying that many of the same kinds of things that we see happening in DeFi mirror many of the same dynamics and and, uh, and innovations and systemic ripple effects um, that we saw leading up to that first crash in 2000, you know, or the, the latest crash in 2008. So it's just great. We are going to walk through it step by step because it packs in a lot here. On top of it, uh, you know, the conclusion of the essay is a really nice analysis of the kind of primary, you know, uh, what she calls, you know, doing a cost benefit calculus, but really looking at many of the the primary kind of arguments in favor of DeFi, um, decentralization, efficiency, and financial inclusion. And, you know, after laying out this really complex uh, comparative analysis, analysis between shadow banking 1.0 and shadow banking 2.0, she then just systematically knocks down um, those those three kind of uh, uh, arguments that are often marshaled to be like at the end of the day, you know, what she's arguing is, you know, DeFi is you know not worth the cost. So we're gonna walk our way up to that, but the, just a fantastic, fantastic um, piece of analysis. Yeah, no, it is a really great essay. It came out or first started circulating. I say late February, early March, and there's been some pushback among crypto. Maybe we'll get to that uh, in the end about like maybe pushback from crypto enthusiasts, but I, but I, but maybe not because I do think the arguments in of themselves are necessary to um, to engage with on their or they're important to come across if you haven't already. And then from there, maybe in future episodes, as we talk more about decentralized finance and other elements of crypto that are worth uh, diving into, you know, some of the pushbacks or criticism that other people in that field have fielded. I think that it's important when we're diving into this to kind of start with the shadow banking 1.0 system, because that is 
the, that's the core thrust of, or that's, that's where some of the core power that feeds into the thrust of our argument comes from. This idea that shadow banking, as it began, was not only a mo- created moral hazards that allowed markets to be distorted, right? And, and, and create situations where you could have runaway leverage, you could have runaway in, in opaque, uh, opaque ne- uh, markets and, and inability to discern what's going on and then codependence that led to the bailouts. She's, she's, uh, building onto that to then say there are one to one to one or roughly one to one analogs present here. And that those should be some uh, things that should be taken account of. And I think like other analyses that we'll dive into eventually, not in this episode or in other episodes about decentralized finance kind of hit this similar point, right? That there are concerning parallels that aren't necessarily one-to-one, but can create different situations in which there's a run on the market or which there's a sudden collapse or which there's an, an inordinate amount of fraud or which there's, um, you know, washing or markets that don't really resemble reality, you know, concerns that we already have, but that might be structurally baked in to how crypto operates, right? So, you know, with, with shadow banking, the, the three main prongs that are kind of focused here on are credit default swaps, mortgage-backed securities, and money market funds. The shadow banking system in of itself is, you know, basically when you saw the rise of speculative financial instruments uh, that were trying to circumvent financial regulation um, and usually doing that by just creating instruments that were far too complex to really be scrutinized or creating legal instruments that operated within the law but also created disastrous or potentially risky situations if the underlying you know bet or if the underlying asset you know burst and so the you know the shadow banking system, you know, as we'll focus on it here, the the first one, the credit def- uh, the the credit default swaps, I think, are kind of an instrument that people are familiar with or may be familiar with if they've come across ex- explainers of the two thousand eight crisis. But I think the ultimate way to view it is through leverage, right? You know, typically, or not typically, but in in, in the market, debt is used a lot to acquire assets, right? You can use loans to provide the financing of a business. You can use debt financing, maybe through bonds to get a loan from someone promising that you'll pay out certain percentage points of interest on it. Or you can borrow, you know, as, you know, as she talks about in credit default swaps, there are multiple forms of leverage, right? And leverage is here, the ability to, to use debt, um, to buy financial asset and acquire it, right? You can take out loans, where a bank will have some capital and they'll loan it out to you and they'll finance a business. You can offer instruments where you're buying um, debt from someone essentially and they promise to pay it back to you with interest or some other additional conditions, right? But a lot of the times there's another form she talks about trading on the margin, which which figures prominently into, into this um, criticism or concern about crypto, right? And where basically you can borrow you know, some of the, some of how much something costs or some, some of the price to, to purchase an asset from the person, right? You trade on the margin and you can use this, this and other techniques and leverage more importantly, right? To make sure that you don't really have to actually shout out a lot of the money. You don't have to actually have a lot of your own capital or skin on the line, but you can still have exposure to a wide variety of assets and investments. But, you know, when you only put down, you know, a small amount 
in different places to, to get access to an asset, you know, market conditions can quickly wipe it out. And then you have to sell the asset to, you know, repay the debt in full or to, uh, to offer more collateral to the person who offered the loan in the first place. So you can quickly see too much leverage or too high of some leverage ratio where uh, someone who may be sitting on billions of dollars of assets but doesn't have anywhere near enough money to actually cover the assets and acquired them with only a few, t- you know, tens of millions of dollars is then suddenly having to sell off billions of dollars worth of assets in the larger economy and what kind of consequences that might have to the financial system as a whole. And, you know, these sort of deleveraging processes, right, are called, you know, f- fire sale externalities or cause fire sale externalities, right? Where you have to basically sell at a discount to satisfy collateral requirements, or to comp- or to you know pay down the debt that was wiped out, right? Um, and then this may force other people to deleverage, and then this forces them into insolvency. She quotes this this one economist, John uh, Giancopoulos, who says that quote: "All leverage cycles end with one bad news that creates uncertainty and disagreement. Two, sharply increasing collateral rates, and three, losses and bankruptcies." among the leveraged optimists. Because leverage can quickly res- you know, lead to some cycle where everyone's deleveraging and there's a fire sale on assets and that will just you know, crush the markets and the prices for them. You know, Ideally, you want to have limits on the ability of people to margin lend, but also to, you, know, you want to have limits on lent loans themselves and the instruments that people are able to use. So this led to the development of credit default swaps in the mid-90s where basically, you, in theory, you can create unlimited ways of um, leverage, right? Because a, a credit default swap, a CDS, is insurance on an asset, usually a bond, right? So if the bond suffers uh, some issue with repayment, you get in- you have insurance on it and you're paid out. Except you don't actually have to hold the bond. Similar, like you know, like we talked about, right? If you don't actually have to own the asset, but you only have to put down a small down payment, then you can still have exposure to it. And similarly, you don't actually have to own the underlying debt. You don't actually have to own the underlying debt, but you can still hold an insurance policy, right? You can still claim insurance on it if it does if it busts. So multiple credit default swaps can refer to and point to the same bond, and so multitudes of people can all have leverage allowing them to potentially benefit from a failure of the bond right to be paid. And so, you know, she writes in the lead up to 2008, CDS buyers often failed to demand any down payment of collateral from their counterparties. And so an unlimited amount of leverage could be created. Many firms like AIG were allowed to make naked bets without any credible showing of collateral to back up their promise to pay in the event that default they were insuring against came to pass. And so the development of the CDS allowed for the creation of more leverage in the financial system, which came to a head in 2008. And so what we're seeing is banks, financial institutions, in an attempt to create these lucrative instruments where you didn't have to have exposure to the underlying bond, but could still claim um, or get an insurance policy on it if the bond failed, right? Um, And then bet against that or bet in favor of that, right? There was a huge amount of excitement around that sort of instrument and after the 2008 crisis happened right realizing how much leverage was hidden by these sort of positions and realizing that they obscured the ability to assess what the market actually looked like and where money should have been they tried to put in limitations on it with with, uh, title seven of dodd frank uh, which ensured that with swamps it had to be cleared that there would be margin requirements 
that you would have to have a certain amount of collateral or money on hand to be able to be doing certain types of trades, uh, especially if you're doing swaps or, and swaps that were uncleared, right? And so when we're, when we're looking at um, credit default swaps and, credit, and, and the obligations that they incurred as a result of that, you know, I think that the, the quote that she has from Giancopolis also is a pretty good uh, eliminator of this example where she writes that, let's say that you have a, you know, a firm F that was neutral bidding one way against firm A on a bond and betting the opposite way of the same bond against firm C could come out a loser anyway. If firm A defaults on its insurance payment, then F will be unpaid by A, but still be on the hook for paying C. So instead of just one firm A going bankrupt and another firm C going unpaid in the absence of collateral, as well as would happen with netting, another firm F might also go bankrupt, closing shop, firing workers, creating other social costs, right? So part of the concern here is not also just to the financial system, but to the external externalities that happen to the rest of people, right? Because these banks went crazy with the leverage, right? So any financial system that is allowing far too much leverage can create incentives for people, or even if it tries to limit it, there are incentives that can emerge that uh, push people to create instruments that allow everyone to make as many bets as possible on the same underlying asset, regardless of whether they hold the asset or not. And also expand the amount of people who, because of the exposure being expanded, um, can be hurt when one repayment doesn't happen or when one policy, insurance policy ends up failing, right? Or when one down payment, right, on this, on one of these assets or some debt instrument fails. And so the goal with regulation is supposed to be minimizing the risk, minimizing the amount of leverage and ensuring that you cannot take Five million, five billion dollars, um, and turn it into 100, 200, 300 billion dollars worth of exposure to other assets that could suddenly need to be cleared or deleveraged if there's a crisis that occurs. Right? It really does kind of point to what you know, what what you were on Tech Won't Save Us just this last week talking about, and your article about you know the the kind of casino nature of the economy and of finance. I mean, you know, we're talking about the lead up to the 2008 crisis. So, you know, not ancient history, but, you know, something to be like, oh, you know, that was, that was, you know, that was a paradigm ago, right? Like, surely we've learned our lesson, but, you know, learn, no. you know, as we walk, <laughs> I mean, spoiler, no, we haven't. Um, but, you know, as we walk through some of these big innovations um, that, that we need to understand you know, that first round of shadow banking in order to understand this current round of shadow banking. I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of, uh, 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 you know, a lot, a lot of things that, you know, it's, it's like I said during the, the prop tech, you know, uh, episode, it's happening again. Everything uh-huh. around us is just that, you know, that twin peaks drop. It's happening again. Um, and, and, you know, what, what we see is, you know, speaking to that kind of casino nature is, uh, you know, it, with things like credit default swaps, massive over leveraging um, in a way that's obviously a problem, right? Obviously a problem if you've got, you know, $100 billion or uh, worth of exposure, you know, you're a big bank, you've got $100 billion worth of exposure to a bunch of assets, um, uh, that you, you know, through these, uh, uh, credit default swaps, um, but no possible way to cover even one of those major losses, but then also setting up a system 
of domino effects where it's not just going to take out one. It's a wrecking ball. It's going to take out everybody because everybody is exposed to the risk, which means that, you know, everybody gets the gains. But when that one failure inevitably happens, it's going to wipe out everybody all at once. It's a, it's a real kind of a nuclear option of finance that can only be explained, I think, um, through, uh, the gambler mindset, right? That like um, these people feel like they're playing with house money um, and, the, and the house just keeps giving them more and more loans and they're getting that serotonin of winning big um, and they're, they're vibing, you know, they got the presidential suite They're you know, they're eating at the buffet, you know, they're, they're sitting at the high roller table, but none of this money is theirs. None of the, you know, but, but yet all the debt, that they're exposed to is certainly theirs to bear. And when, 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 you know, when that winning streak stops, suddenly it's all gone. It's all gone. And I think then this leads us to the next two, right? Where I think you can see a little bit of that mindset come out, right? The second is mortgage-backed securities. So, you know, why were banks turning loans into assets that they could sell? Well, it's because if you keep a loan, if you make a loan and you keep a loan on the book, there are regulatory requirements about the capital, right? You're supposed to fund them with specific amounts of the equity. As Alan writes, you're supposed to uh, abide to a bunch of regulations that you don't actually have to if you can sell them. So you can make the loan, sell the loan almost instantly. So one way to sell the loan instantly is to then turn it securitized, right? So you sell it to a bank, a bankruptcy remote entity. This pays for the loans, as Ellen writes, by selling bonds or other debt instruments to investors. In exchange, these investors receive payments on the principal and interest over time that are derived from the pool of loans. And so when the asset, when the underlying assets are mortgages, then the payments are going to, or the payments to investors are coming from borrower repayments on the individual mortgages, right? So what happens, or, Instead of going right there, so the repayment is coming, or the repayment from the borrowers is going to the investors partially, right? And as Alan writes, this is supposed to be a way for the capital markets to fund these types of loans, right, that are traditionally made by the banks. And to do so in a way that avoids the regulatory capital requirements designed to regulate how banks fund such loans, and that mortgage-backed securitization can be very efficient, right? But then a problem emerges, Right. You can see why some some sort of financial institution or innovation might be inspired to uncouple uh, handling uh, doling out of financing uh, to solely to banks and allow like other entities to buy them up as assets. But when they do that, you know, as Alan points out, there is um, a lack of consistent monitoring of the credit risk that's going on with the loans and assessing them. You need to stopping them or changing the terms of them. And this is what we talked about earlier with the lack of like, you know, well, in the earlier example, the credit default swaps, you're minimizing the amount of capital of your, that you have to put up your own, by yourself or on your own. And in this situation, right, the bank is also minimizes the exposure that they might have to any risky assets. And you might be more incentivized to make loans that otherwise you can justify because then you're selling them off to an entity that will then repackage them into an asset you don't really have to worry about. 
And then again, as um, you know, going on to talk about uh, there are other externalities and and and, and incentives that this brought on. Um, Alan points out that um, law professors Anna Gerplin and Adam Leviditon have observed that MBS were intentionally made inflexible by including contractual prohibitions on modifications and by structuring the transactions to be remote from the modifying powers of bankruptcy courts. Galpern and Leviditon vividly describe these features as a layering of rigidities designed to produce a species of hyper-rigid contacts, contracts that boost commitment in good times but function as suicide packs in bad times. And what do so what do the bad times look like? Uh, they look like the uh, destruction of, of, of the country's um, mortgage foreclosures, uh, the mortgage market of uh, a widespread mortgage foreclosure crisis, which spread and, and threatened um, the global economy, right? So here we really have over leveraging. We have rigidity of the securitization structures. So that makes it hard to examine and modify and you know, figure out solutions to the, uh, handle how the underlying mortgages that were causing the foreclosure crisis could be handled, increasing the number of foreclosures. But then also because securitization contracts, as they write, did not contemplate any sort of nationwide foreclosure crisis because they were so hard to renegotiate once the crisis occurred, the value of the securities produced become unclear. So this then again makes it even harder to trade unless you're trying to do a fire sale on it. So again, we have another, we have another vector for the fire sale externalities. And what, ha- what ended up happening, right? A lot of institutions, when they were trying to deleverage the MBS products that they had, had to then, you know, sell, uh, do fire sales on them, which crashed the value of other financial asset classes. And this kept exposing more and more and more and more of the financial system to instability and one of the, in a leverage cycle, in a deleverage cycle, like we talked about earlier, right? And so Galpern and Levitin, you know, write uh, about how although securitization contracts generate significant externalities and they impose costs on a wide variety or wide range of con- uh, constituencies beyond the contracting parties, that they're designed to limit the government's capacity to mitigate the potential adverse impact on the economy. And so you can't do any reforms on the actual securitization structure after the 2008 crisis. And so the rigidity remains and nothing has changed except maybe the barriers to actually trying to take another asset into into such morally hazardous terrain again. Alan has a really great, great quote here from the uh, the Congressional Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, which I believe she was part of, um, where she's you know talking about the the mortgage securitization pipeline lit and spread the flame of contagion and crisis. And this is something we'll get, you know, this is a little foreshadowing uh, for for the conclusion of the uh, essay where, you know, she's going to talk about how to limit that spread of contagion and crisis. But a lot of what we're talking about here in this first section of the essay um, is really, I think, you know, summarizing a lot of the conclusions of this financial crisis inquiry commission, which was really looking at the uh, the, the kind of 
you know, the, the shadow banking, you know, the unregulated activities, the highly risky um, financial innovations, uh, and the insanely complex system of finance that had emerged around these, you know, these like multiple layers of derivatives of derivatives, abstractions of abstractions, um, you know, creating a system that, uh, that was almost complex by design I think it's, mm-hmm. it's fair to say complex by design in a way that it was meant you know very few people actually could understand how these uh, uh, these different kind of uh, you know financial innovations that we're talking about here actually worked and even fewer people could understand how they all interacted with each other in a systemic way so you know from the out you know, with the hindsight of 2020 and, you know, the, the, the benefit of a, uh, of many years of investigations after the fact, you know, trying to essentially, you know, forensically trying to pick apart the, the rubble of the crash, we can see how the, the, the hyper over leveraging of credit default swaps, the really rigid suicide packs of mortgage backed securities. And we'll get to the third one of money market mutual funds, which as, you know, she talks about essentially the problem here, the risk of, uh, uh, of runs, you know, bank runs that then cause kind of toppling bankruptcy. But, you know, with the hindsight of 2020, we can see how these things are interacting and how they are, you know, just dominoes leading inevitably to the, you know, to everything toppling over. But, you know, within the heady days of, you know, Wall Street, uh, you know, and, and the finance leading up to the crisis, you know, a lot of people weren't really understanding how this was working because one, it was so complex that they couldn't, but also uh, they they didn't want to, you know, it was a real like um, head in the sand style strategy. You know, everyone's making money. Everyone's feeling great. You know, they're at the casino and they're on a hot streak. They got those hot hands um, and everybody. So, but, and so what that means is nobody wants to ask any questions. What's this actually look like? How's this actually working? What is the inevitable and obvious consequence of these financial innovations? These kinds of risk created an opacity, as as uh, Allen writes, even if risks are anticipated, complexity-induced opacity increases the chance that such risk will be underestimated in good times, causing bubbles, and overestimated in bad times, making panic worse. So here we have, you know, a dialectic here of underestimating the risk. And so that's causing these massive bubbles like the mortgage uh, market, you know, um, the housing bubble uh, that eventually collapsed. And then, but then combined with that is that once the tide starts turning a little bit, everybody panics, everybody runs uh, and they want to pull their money out. They want to cash in on, on, you know, the, the favors and loans that people owe them. Uh, and so this just causes that flame of, uh, of crisis to spread even further, um, pulling everybody into it. But it's not just that, you know, and so this is, this is the problem of the complexity. Um, that's, you know, an inherent part of this kind of the shadow banking, uh, you know, and these, innov- these financial, uh, you know, complex financial instruments that we're talking about. But as them, as we'll also talk about later. Similar, you know, to, to what's happening with DeFi, uh, with, you know, and Web3, 
we see a lot of people um, saying that this complexity is actually good, right? And we need to let it run. We need to let it run its course, and we can't we can't uh, uh, regulate it because that'll stop this this engine of of, of innovation and economic growth. Ask you asking too many questions, and then the the engine's going to stop. Um, and so you you end up you know you have uh, senators and you know in the early two thousands saying, you know, we cannot regulate these, these complex uh, derivatives and other financial instruments um, because this is, this is the hallmark of American financial innovation globally. We can't put a stop to that. You no, know, yeah, and, not at all. <laughs> no, and we see the consequences, and we see some very similar things echoing here. Before you know, all leading up to shadow banking 2.0. But before we get there, I'll quickly run through um, the money market mutual funds. This kind of third um, financial instrument, uh, laying out this kind of tripartite comparative analysis that will then get into DeFi and shadow banking 2.0. So. A money market mutual fund is essentially like a type of savings account that doesn't, it acts like a savings account if everything's running correctly, but with higher yields. So deposit taking banks used to face caps on the amount of interest that they could pay. Uh, and so as interest rates rose in, 19, in the 1970s and after, this was very frustrating for depositors, you know, because they're like, why would I be putting my money? In a credit account uh, or a savings account, um, when I'm when I could be getting so much more interest by parking my money in the bank, putting it other places, you know, the, what what's what's going on here? And so there were all these depositors that wanted different places to park their money where they could get higher rates of interest, just passive income from leaving their money in the bank, but knowing that their money is there when they want it, right? So they kind of want a little bit of the of both, of bo uh, best of both worlds happening. Money market mutual funds then were developed to capture this market of people who wanted higher interest rates to just park their money that uh, higher than what were uh, legally allowed by regular deposit taking banks. Um, and so what, what, what ends up happening is that you put your money in a money market mutual fund and it looks and acts kind or it, on the surface, it kind of looks and acts like a, a savings account. But in reality, what you're doing is you're buying shares in a mutual fund, you know, kind of one for one shares in a mutual fund. Um, but these were, they're not actually bank deposits, right? While there's no interest rate cap applied uh, to, to, these in, uh, uh, to these deposits, that also means there's no deposit insurance. So the CDIC is not insuring your deposits in case something happens because you're not actually depositing your money in a savings account, them, even though that's how they're marketed and even though that's how they are meant to look uh, is that it's just it's just like a type of savings account, but in reality, what you're doing is you're spending a dollar for one share in a mutual fund, and a mutual fund is a whole collection of stocks, you know, and bonds. You're buying in, you're buying shares of a broader pool 
of stocks and bonds. Um, and so while they work as a, a, a functional substitute for deposits, uh, it's only because of special accounting treatments that allow these shares in a fund to be consistently valued at $1, $1 for one share. Um, but as I mentioned, you know, what that hides is the fact that these shares is actually a pool of assets with fluctuating prices. And so its value is changing constantly, but it's only through these kinds of special uh, accounting tricks that uh, uh, keep that that share in the in the money market mutual fund floating at a dollar. Um, but if the market fluctuates too wildly, share, you know, the the share prices of the money market mutual fund can deviate um, from a dollar. If they deviate too far then these kind of special accounting tricks um, cease to be available. You, you can't do it. You can only massage the books so much. You can only massage the, this kind of floating share price so much until you know the, the shareholders end up finding that, that their shares in the money market mutual funds have been revalued. Um, and you know the problem then becomes when they're revalued below a dollar because that suddenly means that what you, what you think of and what you're treating as a savings account, suddenly your money starts bleeding. It starts, you know, you start having less and less money in your savings account. Hey, that's not the way it's supposed to go. This is hmm. supposed to be passive income. It's supposed to be gaining money, not losing money. What's going on here? <laughs> this is known as breaking the book, <laughs> which also you never you never want your buck broken. Let me no. let me tell you that. <laughs> but. So in September 2008, as Alan writes, the Reserve Primary Fund, which was a money market mutual fund with exposure to Lehman Brothers, broke the book, and that which meant its shares went below a dollar. And so that event caused many investors in other money market mutual funds to panic. Uh, a, a run ensued as panicked investors rushed to redeem their money market mutual fund shares as quickly as possible. They feared that if they waited too long, their fund would have already sold its best assets to satisfy other investors' redemption requests, leaving them less likely to receive $1 per share, a calculation that mirrors the calculation that depositors make during banking runs. Or, uh, and, and so... Or at least before the days of uh, deposit insurance, which were meant to uh, you know limit and prevent bank runs, to essentially say, "Don't worry, your money is going to be there because it's insured." But remember, money market mutual funds are not actually um, uh, bank like bank accounts, so they don't have deposit insurance. And so during a during the run on these money market mutual funds, uh, redemption requests can force them to start liquidating investments at fire sell prices in order to satisfy redemption requests. Uh, you know, so everybody wants their money pooled out of the money market mutual fund, but it's not sitting there. It's just a pool of money where you say, okay, you go up. How much do you have? Here it is. They have to sell assets to get to, to get liquid, uh, to, to liquefy and get that money, which they can then give to people who are redeeming their shares in the mutual fund. So when you start seeing these massive money market mutual funds start uh, uh, having runs on them, 
And, you know, they have exposure, they have ownership to a lot of different assets. And so when they start selling off really quickly, it starts depressing the asset market, right? These, so suddenly the assets that they have are, are worth, worth even less uh, because of these fire sales. You know, in order to sell, you have to lower the price in order to buy, uh, find buyers who are willing to, to buy um, those assets. And so what we end up seeing is that, you know, it's, uh, depre it depresses the asset market cuts off credit for the corporations in which these money market mutual funds usually invest uh, through the commercial paper market. You know, um, and, and so only three days after this reserve primary fund with exposure to Lehman Brothers broke the buck after its shares dipped um, far below you know, a dollar, the Treasury Department temporarily guaranteed a dollar share price for all these money market mutual funds. So essentially stepping in and doing an ad hoc deposit insurance. Uh, and the Fed Reserve also provided emergency liquidity saying, you know, so what they're saying is just giving them money. The Fed Reserve is just giving these banks money to which then they are then giving to the people who are are running to redeem their shares. Uh, and this is in order to limit these fire sales, you know, stop the the inferno that is depressing the asset markets and thus having like massive ripple effects throughout um, the whole economy. And also prop up the commercial paper market, right? Or in other words, you know, uh, prop up all these companies and uh, that are also looking at, you know, failing if, if suddenly there's no way um, to, uh, you know, exchange money, right? And, and so uh, all of this is to say is that, you know, what, what ends up happening is that something like a, something that looks like a dollar and acts like a, a savings account uh is not is neither a dollar it's a share nor is it a savings account it's a it's a money market mutual fund uh but again this is that like uh another one of these really complex um financial instruments that was meant to get around a regulation i.e you know interest rates that uh um, deposit banks could could apply um but then end up leading to massive consequences when a confluence of events happen right so you know this is what made the great the, the global financial crisis so complex is that wasn't one thing it was, you know, as Ed was talking about with credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities, as I laid out with the money market mutual funds, it wasn't just a solo cause to the crisis. It was a system. It was a number of different instruments and innovations all coming together uh, in, a, in a way that was greater than the sum of the individual parts. It was a gestalt that led to a kind of cascading crisis um you know we see it as one large crisis but in reality it was like it was the domino meme right of like the one little domino tipping over and then only a few dominoes down the line it's like a whole it's like a house-sized domino that just crashes down right uh, because we see the over leveraging of credit default swaps means that people are exposed to way more debt than they could ever possibly cover. The rigidity of the mortgage-backed securities caused these suicide packs, right? Where pe there's no flexibility 
in the financial system to deal with the crisis. It's like, it's like what led to, uh, uh, World War One, right? It's like, you know, Arch, Arch, uh, Duke Ferdinand gets shot. And then because of these like really complex systems of interlocking treaties in Europe, everybody gets pulled into a war. Um, and there's, there, you know, these contracts are suicide packs, whether it's a, a Westphalian treaty or a financial instrument, uh, ultimately leading to glo- similar global consequences. And then again, we see with the money market mutual funds, this is now bringing in the consumer side. As people start panicking, they start running, uh, they start redeeming their shares they want their money back from the bank, and this is causing even more contagion and crisis to spread like wildfire throughout the asset market as prices start depressing because everybody is uh, selling and nobody is buying, right? And so that that is the story of the global financial crash and 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 the role that shadow banking 1.0 played in that, which now brings us to and I'll hand it back over to Ed uh, the you know the DeFi system. So you know we saw with shadow banking 1.0 uh, damaged financial stability by helping to multiply, as Alan writes, the amount of leverage in the financial system by making the system more rigid and more susceptible to runs with spillover effects. Um, and so, uh, as Alan now lays out, um, this the nascent DeFi ecosystem with you know cryptocurrencies and smart contracts and stable coins and whatnot um, has potential to do the same exact thing in ways that look very, very similar. There have really only been a few good explainers of DeFi Wall Street Journal has one, uh, mainly from the perspective of like disgust that you can create these financial instruments with your own code um, as a principal in DeFi. Uh, you know, as much as I didn't like the Latecomer's Guide to Crypto by Kevin Roos, the DeFi section is a good overview, actually, of what it is, even if it does kind of take for granted and assumes good faith of all the descriptions and descriptors of what crypto and, and decentralized finance is, is going to do. But I think it probably makes sense to do that since we're going to be criticizing it. So I won't use this definition, but I will rely on Alan's because I do think it, it points in a similar direction, right? Alan acknowledges, right? And I think Roos does a bit also that there's a, there's a diversity of terms and meanings and definitions um, referring to DeFi, but at, at its core, it's probably best to describe it in terms of the chunks and some of the guardrails and boundaries of what it does and doesn't want to do, right? So in general, you're thinking of decentralized software applications of dApps that are aiming to displace and replace or replace key financial services and institutions and products uh, with an approach that can be described as a Lego style thing where the idea is you want to allow and empower people to create their own blocks of code, own applications that can then be built 
and integrated with one another to build and provide services, to construct markets, to offer instruments and products, um, to regulate in ways that centralized intermediaries traditionally do in the hopes of displacing them entirely. So you have the decentralized software applications. You have them being used to offer tokens, right? Crypto tokens and digital assets on this permissionless distributed ledger. You have the ledger, which is a decentralized through a, de- uh, you know, a, a large network of computers, right? And it's permissionless in that uh, there's no centralized intermediary that in, you know can actually outright control who's recording transactions. So most of decentralized finances, services, applications, so on and so forth, are built on the Ethereum blockchain and on the blockchains inspired by Ethereum, right? Because they are allowing for diff- the, the Ethereum as a as a offers the ability to sit as a layer or the foundation of layers of protocols, services that in a way that Ethereum doesn't. It is on the Ethereum and Ethereum-inspired blockchains that you can create NFTs, that you can create In the create way that DAOs. Bitcoin doesn't. Right. You said in the way Ethereum doesn't. So just oh, sorry. To be clear. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Ethereum allow, it has more infrastructural capabilities than the Bitcoin blockchain does, which is pretty much just crypto. And so this can allow us to create governance tokens for DAOs, for decentralized groups that vote through who holds what token. This allows us to create stable coins, which are assets that are supposed to be pegged to a core asset, namely fiat currencies, to avoid the volatility of typical um, of uh, typical tokens, right? And you have a really core insight here or really core features that dApps are structured and built by smart contracts. And smart contracts are computer programs that are running on the ledger and govern what rules and conditions tokens and coins are going to operate, how they're going to execute, how they're going to enforce, how they're going to regulate, right? In such a form that the code is the law, right? Uh, you can't alter previous transactions on the blockchain and you can't alter the smart contracts and so th- but but these are still nonetheless the iron grid kind of almost rigid uh foundations of the dapps and so we the dapps are then used to integrate smart contracts into traditional forms of software as Alan writes to create user-facing interfaces right so defi i think then from there you know it's exciting for crypto proponents because i think you know i think one way to think of it is in the response to an interview that someone did with um you know the atlantic's charlie warzel did an interview with alan about her paper um and and then a few days later i think coindesk kind of response to it you know they kind of articulated that the the great hope of crypto is quote we have the prospect of freeing our financial system from dependency on the overly powerful intermediaries that have for too long commandeered an excessive proportion of the economy's resources and political capital. To achieve that, we don't necessarily need to attain some utopian standard of total decentralization. Rather, we need a system that is sufficiently open to competition and innovation for a significantly wider set of participants than exist the current system. This means certain elements should be decentralized and permissionless. Others will involve the requirement of more trusted parties to achieve appropriate efficiency. What matters is the balance such that every institution uh, is subject to some form of market pressure. So I think therein lies kind of 
I think what would be a safe definition of a core aspect of DeFi, which is that you want, in theory, they want people to be able to rest from the control of banks, uh, hedge funds, other financial institutions, Wall Street more generally, right? Federal Reserve, central state authorities. They want to rest from them control over finances and rest from them control over a huge chunk of how the world operates and where the political power is. But they want to also then empower individuals or in theory, empower individuals to construct what comes next or to help have a say in constructing what comes next and to also only involve themselves in the institutions, products and services that fit their needs. I mean, then there's, but there's of course a huge difference between the rhetoric and the reality of the situation. You know, so as Hallen writes, proponents of the DeFi assert that technologies will be used in concert to provide new versions of payments, lending, trading, investments, insurance, and asset management. The, I think it's fair to say that most of this is aspirational, right? Because as it is right now, there aren't really much applications for it outside of crypto. It's referred to here. It's called self-referential here. This is also something that Yevgeny Morozov talked about when he called Web3 a search, Web3 and crypto and DeFi by extension, a map in search of meaning. Um, that these are self-referential projects catch that have interesting applications and developments going on in them, but right now are dominated by scams that right now are dominated by fraud, right now are dominated by failure, right now are dominated by large loopholes and exploits and short failings and limitations that make it undesirable for us to see, uh, you know, to try and scale this up and to, to become a bigger part of the financial ecosystem. And so one reason why the shadow banking argument is established in the first part is one, shadow banking wasn't simply just like a, a host of risks that were caused or costs to the financial system and stability, but also social costs that were borne by people having to deal with the consequences of financial instruments they didn't understand, of financial instruments they had no exposure to, but that other institutions they relied on did. And that, you know, failing to regulate it properly, failing to properly insulate it from political pressures or even market pressures in some places, or failing to, or or allowing markets to dominate or financiers to dominate the decision-making led to disastrous outcomes, right? But that here, where there may be something that is similar brewing already, right? Alan writes that, you know, these new versions of existing financial services may avoid much of the regulation that typically applies to existing financial services they are emulating, but they still have many of the same or worse fragilities of those existing services. Specifically, one, the unlimited production of tokens can introduce more leverage into the system, potentially outstripping the leverage associated with credit default swaps in the lead up to 2008 crisis. Two, smart contracts are designed to be even more rigid than the mechanisms that turned mortgage-backed securitizations into suicide packs during the crisis. And three, stablecoins share many of the features of money market mutual funds that made them susceptible to runs in 2008 and again in 2020. And then on top of this, dApps are largely complex. Although, oh my God, I don't know how I'm gonna, I don't know when I'm gonna do it, but there is a company that is actually interested in making them less complex. And I think this company's batshit, but they might do it, which would, I think would be bad, but more on that later. You know, so the dApps are complex. Um, there, it's not necessarily easy to audit or review them. Most there's already an established system for dealing with complex instruments that people scarcely understand, and there's none of that here. 
You know, as she writes, few are able to read the computer code of the smart contracts that make up the dApps. Even those who can will struggle to find flaws simply by looking at the code in the abstract. While it's possible for the operators of dApps to provide written disclosures to their users, written disclosure documents may prove to be highly inconsistent with how the code of the relevant smart contracts actually functions. And there's no way for investors or regulators to verify this unless they can run a beta test or at the very least read the code. And then additionally, on top of all of this, right, that the complexity is as a result, there's a convoluted governance structure that she talks about uh, that controls how the DAP software, as well as uh, how the permissionless ledgers uh, on which the DAPs run all operate, right? So if a problem emerges and you need to have some sort of intervention that you might normally, you know, have a centralized intermediary do, um, because there'll be spillover effects, because, you know, some fire sale externality, because of some runaway, uh, because of some run, right? Um, you can't actually intervene. You can't, and it's not clear that we would be able to figure out those sheer scale, depth, uh, severity of the problem, where to intervene, where to inject funds, where to stabilize, right? You know, as we talked about there, there's the leverage issue. There's the, uh, there's the rigidity issue, right? Um, and there is susceptibility to runs. And then on top of all this, there's a complexity issue, which may make the whole system as a whole difficult to understand as an object and to intervene in when it is failing, or if we do even want to do reform. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really important point to underline before we start getting into the her, her kind of analysis of, of, of shadow banking 2.0 is, is this complexity issue. Right. I mean, you know, as she, as she mentioned, you know, it, it's, it's, it's in, insanely hard, if not impossible to do as an investor, the due diligence required, uh, to, to suss out, you know, how these, uh, the, the kind of these DeFi dApps, you know, decentralized applications or distributed applications actually work, how the smart contracts actually work in practice. Uh, you know, this is all things that are necessary for, for doing due diligence, let alone actually regulating them in a way that, you know, understand why, you know, why is that difficult is because you're layering complexities now. It's like, it's interdisciplinary complexity. Um, I mean, you know, as I, as I was talking about earlier, one of the huge problems with Wall Street still, uh, but, uh, but led to, the uh, global financial crash was this highly increased complexity of people not understanding how these instruments actually worked. Uh, you know, people on Wall Street using them at the financial institutions, let alone uh, investors who were meant to be doing due diligence on them, let alone regulators who were meant to be auditing and overseeing them. Um, and so add to that another type of complexity, but now it's one that's around, you know, uh, 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 you know, blockchain and smart contracts and, uh, you know, de decentralized, uh, network technologies. In other words, in order to, uh, be able to understand these things, and this is a point that, uh, Hillary Allen makes in her interview, um, with, uh, Charlie Wurzel, uh, is that you have to now be an expert with access to you know an expert in uh finance and computer science but not only an expert in those two disparate and highly complex and technical fields but an expert with access 
to uh, proprietary information, to the code of the smart contracts, right? Um, to uh, being able to know how these instrument, these financial instruments are created, um, uh, even access to the internal motivations and desires of the people creating these things to ensure that they are good faith, right? Like all of a sudden, you now have to have uh, uh, multiple different types of of, of expertise and highly technical fields, while also applying that expertise to information that is really difficult to gain access to. I don't see how this could go wrong, Ed. <laughs> I don't see how this could go wrong. Honestly, I think it would be a bit ridiculous if you tried to insist that there's any way that this could go wrong. <laughs> you just Could you name one? Can you name a single way this? <laughs> wind it up and let it go. Just wind it up and let it go. Um, but I, I just really want to uh, uh, emphasize that because while you know, while we'll get into the details of how these different dynamics uh, that we all, the that we talked about in Shadow Banking 1.0, right? As 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 Alan calls it, um, you know, around leverage, rigidity, and runs, uh, and we'll get into how they apply. To uh, these, you know, DeFi and what she calls shadow banking 2.0. While we'll get into the specifics of that, it's important to highlight just the background conditions of complexity here um, at, at at play, and that really establish uh, already just uneven ground, un unstate, rather unstable ground um, on which to build these things. You know, as uh, as Alan writes. If a problem were to occur, an emergency intervention needed to be provided within the DeFi ecosystem to head off catastrophic spillover effects for the rest of the financial system, it could be difficult to figure out who to provide emergency support to and, or, or how to provide that emergency support, where to provide it, right? Uh, let alone actually having avenues and uh, and opportunities to provide those interventions. Um, so what we see here is already a highly uh, create the creation of a highly fragile system um, that now on top of that you know that fragile foundation we're building a really complex system um, you know so her argument is really one from from top to bottom here it's not just that there's some some weird wonky uh, technologies or applications happening here you know it's not just a kind of like this targeted critique of a few specific things or actors or or even you know beliefs or ideologies but it really is a through and through systemic systemic critique that she's leveling here is that the problem is not specific little branches the problem is the the trunk and the roots of this system So with that, then, you know, we, we have only, you know, really just laid out the, uh, the beginnings of Alan's argument. You know, we, we've gotten to her, you know, kind of 
very brief, succinct, but I think really clear analysis of the cause of, of, of the 2008 financial crash uh, and the operations of the, that, that kind of first wave of shadow banking. Um, we've laid out some of the uh, really uneven ground of DeFi and of the of, of TradFi, traditional finance, you know, the, the kind of similarities here in terms of having um, frag- fragile foundations, um, of having hyper complex uh, system that uh, kind of wards away any attempts to understand it. Uh, and with that, you know, uh, Alan is now going to get into, you know, a kind of tripartite analysis of DeFi, looking again at those big three th- uh, dynamics of le- leverage, rigidity, and runs, and how they play out in DeFi with uh, the unlimited production of tokens, uh, the you know, smart contracts that are, uh, you know, can act like suicide packs, um, and stable coins that can share features of money like the money market mutual funds, but in reality uh, are, are themselves also susceptible to uh, runs of, of redemption and fire sales um, of the assets that provide them liquidity. So we're going to get into that. Uh, Alan is also going to provide uh, a really, really detailed uh, uh, analysis of um, the supposed benefits of DeFi, namely decentralization, uh, efficiency, and financial inclusion. She's going to knock those down with a strong arguments of the like that I've not really seen so clearly stated in one place. Um, And then also provide us with a really uh, good policy recommendation. I mean, this paper has it all. So we'll get to all that, but I think we will just actually... In the fine, the free episode there. I mean, we are just at over an hour. Um, so we are going to head into the Patreon, the post game, uh, to really get into the second half of ha- Alan's analysis, looking at all those things around DeFi, uh, and, and, uh, how to understand it what to do about it so find us over there on patreon.com slash this machine kills uh where we are going to get deeper into alan's paper talk more about DeFi, uh and and you know lay out these similarities this comparative analysis to you know it's still early days but if we let that shit keep going the way that is now um, it's going to look much the same as it did in 2008. You know, the, the crash might happen in different ways, unfold in different ways. But again, you know, it, it's, it's imminent and inevitable if we just let that motor keep running without putting some limits on it, without guiding it, uh, without stopping it. So find us there on patreon.com slash this machine kills for all of that. Uh, and uh, we will see you then. Later. Adios. Adios.